Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the continuation of the Division Capsule series, and it continues with the Central Division. Lots of interesting stuff here, and two phenomenal guests, Caitlin Cooper of the Basketball She Wrote Patreon and Blog, and Dan Feldman of Dunked on Prime. We had a great conversation covering these teams in a whole lot of depth. I really loved it. And it is brought to you by FanDuel. New customers get five bet $5 and can get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. So go to FanDuel.com slash Boston. I'll talk a lot more about that later on the show. This episode runs well over an hour. Lots of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thanks for having us. Hey, thanks for inviting me on to talk about all five teams in the Central Division this this go around. Well, and thank thank you so much for for coming on. And the Central Division, it's funny. I, I the last one I recorded was the Pacific, where not that much changed. I would say more changed here. And we could start this with Dan in the Central. Who do you think got better, and who do you think got worse? Well, I think the Cavs and Pacers very clearly got better. And with the other teams, I. Th- I guess I think the Pistons probably got better. Uh, and then with the last two teams, the, the the Bulls and Bucks, I think it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. I think there's a case to be made, at least, that all five teams in this con- in this division got better. What do you think, Caitlin? I think that's kind of where I land as well. I mean, I will say for the Bulls, I think, generally speaking, that's still pretty rudderless and what they're going to end up being and whether they can be you know, a contender in the playoffs. But relative to themselves... And the needs that they needed to address, I think with Javon Carter and Torrey Craig, they did fix some problems. And they were better after they signed Patrick Beverly last year. They went 14-9. and nine. Javon Carter fills some of that for them. I think that that's a better offseason than they had a year ago. So I can talk myself into the Bulls being better next year. What that means in the long term <laughs> is another question. But the Milwaukee Bucks are kind of the only team that I have a question mark here. And it's not because I don't think that they're contenders. It's just I think there's a little bit more uncertainty there with a the coaching change and the way that it seems that they're kind of re-envisioning the way they want to build things around Giannis. But I agree with Dan. I think that the Pacers and the Pistons and the Cavs all got better. The Bucks are a fascinating place to like really delve in and, and start here because I agree with the general consensus on the kind of the that that they didn't do a lot like the Bucks had a successful offseason, I think, when Nate and I did grades and gave them a B plus. But if we're talking talent in, talent out, they probably did get worse. They lost Javon Carter, they lost Joe Ingles, they lost West West Matthews, which was the most in some ways the most surprising of those three to me. I like Malik Beasley. Obviously Robin Lopez has a history with the Bucks, so I'm on board there. And so so in terms of talent in, talent out, I don't think it's a huge swing, but it is. I mean, Javon Carter helped them a fair amount last year. And the hope is, of course, that the two, there are two other factors here. So one of them is positive and one of them is negative. The one that is positive is hopefully, for those of us who are fans of basketball and, of course, Bucks partisans too, they have a healthier year. Chris Middleton, in the regular season, only played 33 games, only started 19 so that gives you an idea of how, how little he played last year. Total minutes for Chris Middleton, 801. So you can expect that to 
to go up. And then, you know, Giannis missed some time. Drew missed some time. Lopez was remarkably durable. So that part of it, I think you can argue that the Bucks' best players hopefully will play more collectively than they did. However, you also have the passage of time where this is an older team. They don't really have any pre-prime players that they're leaning on heavily. So that weighs in. And and as Caitlin got to, the other big element is Mike Budenholzer, who has been a wonderful regular season coach at bare minimum. And, you know, obviously won a championship there as well. And so whether the Bucks are, I, I think they're a little bit worse for talent, but as you, the bull, like there are other teams you talk about this with, maybe their talent on the floor will be better. Yeah, I think one of the more underrated storylines in the NBA for a while has been how, how old Giannis's supporting cast is. The Bucks have been an awesome team, uh, but there's an expiration date around Giannis. He's still playing at a high level and should play at a very high level for a while. Um, I, I think this team is still a contender. I don't think they've hit that uh, wall yet. But it's coming. I think with them too, like their big four still performed very well in net rating when when mm-hmm. Brooke and Drew and Giannis and Chris were out there. I do think that Chris experienced a drop off defensively, where maybe they're going to have to have him start guarding up positions and some of what they do defensively in general. Like just thinking about Adrian Griffin coming over, he's obviously a defense first coach, and it kind of sounds to me like reading some of their interviews and stuff that they've done since hiring him that they envision doing things a little bit differently defensively than what they've done before, and how that will play with. Brooke Lopez, I think will be interesting because when you look at like just as a comparison with the Toronto Raptors, and there's no guarantee that he will take things directly from what he was doing at his prior stop. Although I do have experience with Nate Bjorkren literally copying and pasting almost everything the Raptors were doing with the Pacers. <laughs> but um, with with Adrian, like after they made that move to get Jakob Pertle at the trade deadline, they were very outspoken, especially Nick Nurse and saying like he was playing deep drop with San Antonio and now we want him playing up to a touch. They wanted him up closer to the ball and I wonder if some of that happens with Brooke Lopez as well and that doesn't mean they're going to give up like a bunch of corner threes like the Raptors did because the Raptors relaxed that after they had Pirtle because when you have a center there you don't have to be rotating over and doing like the democratic rim protection that they were having to do but I bring this up because I just think it brings an interesting point in what they're doing with the roster and how they're using draft picks because the Bucks have been the last three years worse in transition progressively last year they were 29th in points added per possession in transition transition they didn't get out and run in transition anymore and I think it speaks to what Danny just said that this is an aging roster and before in the Mike Budenholzer scheme they're very much surrounding Giannis with shooters and if those guys can't run out and get there with Giannis like does that have the same feel as what it seems like they're now doing when they're drafting you know Marjan a year ago and now they've taken you know the guard out of UConn and and just it seems like they're more moving towards wanting to have ball handling and cutting and ball movement around Giannis and I'm just very curious to see how that's going to play with teams potentially building walls around him and if that does lead to getting out and transition more. With those guys they drafted, I, I'm less concerned about their style of play than whether they can actually play. I, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just not counting on either one of them to be in the playoff rotation. That's why I look at somebody like Malik Beasley, uh, who could fit really well with, with the idea of surrounding Giannis with shooters and they can keep that identity. I'm with you in being far more interested in defensively what this team wants to do. Uh, Jakob Hurdle is an interesting comparison. I think he's far more capable uh, of defending out the perimeter than Brooke Lopez and not as good when he's in the paint. Uh, so the trade-off of playing that style with him, I, I, you know, I, I think it makes a lot more sense with him than it would with Brooke. So I, I don't know. I mean, uh, as you know, with your Bjorken example, some coaches are are better at catering to their roster than others, and some are a little more stuck in their their stylistic philosophies. Yeah, I mean, in the zone things 
suppressant too, because the, the Bucks I think played like 40 possessions of zone last year. And I don't think they ever did it with Brooke Lopez on the court until game one of the playoffs against the heat when the heat had like a 10 point lead. And then they tried to play like a three, two zone. And it was fairly evident that that was the first time they were doing it <laughs> with that group of players on the floor. So, you know, the Raptors have been very famous and how much they're willing to try various different types of zones. And maybe that's another thing that they look at in different ways that, I mean, I would just think that they're going to want to do things defensively. That's going to lead to them forcing more turnovers. Cause I, I think they were 29th or 30th in opponent or I mean, in points scored off turnovers as well. And it just seems like they might want to do a little bit more of that to juice what their transition offense has been, but we'll see. To me, the most fascinating signing offseason, you could argue overall offseason move, other than maybe the the Budenholzer Griffin change, is Bruce Brown going to the Pacers. And obviously, we can have Caitlin start here. And and what I'm more interested, we just talked about the Bucks defense. What do you think Bruce Brown's defensive role is going to be? Is it just take on the toughest assignment of anybody he can pr- presumably guard? I think it really is going to depend on who is in the starting lineup. And while the Pacers haven't given any indicators there, like just reading the breadcrumbs, Benedict Matherin did an interview with Stephen A. Smith on the alternate broadcast during the NBA finals, where he indicated that he's basically been told that he's going to be the starting small forward next year, which makes sense because over the last 10 games of the year, Buddy Heald had slid back to the bench and the Pacers were starting Ben. So if you're going to have a backcourt of Tyrese and Ben out on the floor, I do think Tyrese has had a few better moments on ball with Team USA than what I saw at the back end of last season, but I still think generally speaking, you don't really want him in that role, especially because of how important he is as an engine to the Pacers uh, transition offense. Ben's screen navigation isn't where you want it to be. Like Even if you're switching, he can create some domino effects. He doesn't veer into the screener super well. So if if those two are going to be out there, I think that you'd want Bruce Brown defending at the point of attack as much as possible so that you can have Tyrese playing more of an aerial ace role. I, I expect that they will have several changes on that end of the floor. They've been a bottom five defense each of the last two seasons they know they have to get better at that and when you watch them in summer league and that's not a perfect you know sometimes what happens in vegas stays in vegas sometimes it doesn't we'll see but you could hear a lot of terminology out there where they were saying chase through the screen veer square where there were changes they weren't icing side pick and rolls anymore they were squaring those up and funneling stuff middle and it just it indicates to me that there might be a move back to them playing a little bit more traditionally and conservatively on that end of the floor now that they're going to have bruce brown they're going to have more size at the four position than what they were really capable of last year when they were having to assign miles at times to low usage wings just so they could keep him low because they were playing like eight guards a night so I think that Bruce generally speaking will start out games against point of attack at the point of attack and then you know as as games go on if you're able to mix and match and have Aaron Neesmith out there or Andrew Nemhart out there in lineups with him then maybe maybe he's taking on whoever the top assignment is from there but that's the overall role I think that they'll move him around quite a bit what do you think if Indiana goes to a, a more traditional defensive approach that, that does to the Pacers uh, fast break, uh, where we know that can be so potent, they've got the players for it. Uh, but if they're if they're not generating as many opportunities, or maybe you think they still can uh, by playing that more traditional defensive style. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think it'll affect them too much because they were number two in average time to shoot after a made shot. Like a lot mm. of what they did in transition was following makes because Tyrese is so quick at processing hit ahead passes and and looking like he, he, the, the micro quirk that I always like to point out with him is that when an opposing team makes a shot, he never looks at the inbound passer. He always mm. peeks, takes a peek over his shoulder and is already looking down the floor before he even has the ball so that he knows where his teammates are and knows where those hit ahead opportunities are going to be. So 
I don't think it'll impact them a lot. I mean, they already were top five in most transition categories last year, and they were a bottom five defense, and they were a very poor rebounding team. So if they make even marginal improvements <laughs> off that and can secure and actually get stops, then I think it will it will actually help them. I'm really happy you brought up rebounding because Indiana has been dead last two of the last three years in defensive rebounding, including the most recent season where they gave up a 30.7% offensive rebound rate if memories i think that's i think that's right like that that's the cleaning the glass iteration but that's like astonishing when you think about it. like so for example the pacers two years ago they were third in offensive rebounding and they had a worse offensive rebound rate than the last year's pacers gave up and so having jarris walker having obi top in there they have some foibles and they have some you know some some interesting questions defensively and of course offensively but you brought up that they were playing eight guards a lot and just finishing an extra, let's call it 5% of possessions would actually make a huge difference for them. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to watch what the impact is on the defensive glass. I would expect that they'll be somewhat better than next than last year for two reasons. When you're playing so small, and they, they like to use the phrase guard your yard, and to really be able to defend the ball, they didn't have guys who could do that on the perimeter. So they had to go to a very extreme measure, sometimes defensively, to give themselves a chance to outscore opponents. So you would see them going to switch to blitz, having to double the post a lot, having to you know really be aggressive at the nail. And when you're doing that, and you're putting yourself into rotation with double teams that tends to lead holes for offensive rebounding it's kind of like watching that series series between the warriors and and the kings like yes kevon looney was beasting everybody but a aspect of that was when you're having to trap that far out on stephen curry it creates holes and you're not right next to somebody to go box that body out so just by virtue of if they have more length and size out on the court i don't think they're gonna have to do as much trapping i think that will help them but the other aspect of that is obi Toppin likes to leak out a lot and the pacers switch with their four man a lot so i think a part of their transition offense that you might see is that if obi Toppin does switch out to the ball and he goes to contest the three that he's just going to keep on running so then you're dependent on those other four guys and particularly with miles turner are you going to be able to secure that rebound if he's leaking out a lot like he did that with the knicks but the knicks were you know i think top 12 and opponent offensive rebounding rate so you can kind of survive that a little bit better than what you can with the pacers so that's definitely something i'll be keeping an eye on yeah that's a fantastic point and the difference between playing i mean the knicks the knicks are always playing a traditional five like that was just the way they did it and then they often had pretty good rebounders at either the two or the three whether we're talking about rj barrett or josh hart depending on which iteration the knicks were we're discussing here so that is going to be a difference and carlisle is going to have to to navigate that I want to go to the Pistons and a big picture element of the Pistons offseason that I think in part because of just how weird, like they made a lot of these moves where they like took on a guy and didn't get a ton necessarily in return, is that with new coach Money Williams, which of course I want to discuss as well, they theoretically now, and I'm not saying the Pistons will do this because there are different motivations like playing young guys and everything else, they can play NBA caliber talent all the time. Like they can do that for 48 minutes a game if they want to. And so that really, like, I always think of that as one of the biggest floor raisers that a team can have. Yeah, but you know what is a uh, floor lower when some of that NBA talent is uh, multiple centers and you got to play them together? <laughs> True. Right. It, it's, it's, you know, it's not the same when it, it's Marvin Bagley and uh, Jalen Duran sharing the floor. My only thing, though, is, is like, do they have to play them together? <laughs> well, <laughs> I hear you. 
but if you want to give the, I think the guys they want to give minutes to, it's going to be impossible not to. Now you could choose not to give Marvin Bagley minutes, and I wouldn't argue with you. Uh, but I, it just doesn't seem like that's where they're at. Well, and it's it's also adding in you know James Wiseman to this mix, and so you're like the, I, and even if we're going to define Bagley as a four, like the the challenge for Monty Williams is even just when we start at the foundation of Wiseman. Durin, Isaiah Stewart, and they just gave Isaiah Stewart an extension. I really like Isaiah Stewart, think he can play. Like, you even start with those three guys. I think that you can construct a rotation with three of them that'll make you happy, but then you add in Bagley and you add in some of the other guys that are limited shooters. It gets complicated. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm with you in liking Isaiah Stewart. I think uh, he's worked on his three. It's not to the point where all of a sudden he's going to work well in these lineups. You know, Wiseman is not stretching the floor. Duran's not stretching the floor. Bagley's not stretching the floor. I, I mean, do you, if you want to call Bagley a four rather than a five, I guess. But, but to the point of like he is a big man who doesn't shoot. Right. That's the simplest. Uh, way and I, I just think there's there's too many of them clocking it up. Uh, but they could shift away from that if they wanted to. They like you said, they do have a lot of depth through the forward and guard lines uh, where they could play some smaller lineups. It's not going to be super clean. Um, you know, th- there's not somebody who I wouldn't say there's enough uh, clear power forward ability where you're not going to be undersized at times or too large. Like that's kind of a hangup uh, to get. So you know, I, I guess maybe this is what I'm kind of circling at. You, you might have 48 minutes of. Ro- rotation caliber players in isolation, but you might be playing somebody at power forward who's not a rotation caliber power forward in that role, whether because he's too small or more likely more often too big. Yeah, I mean, I think I buy all that, and I think it kind of depends on how much Monty Williams's hands are tied, depending upon how committed they are to finding out what they have in James Wiseman and Marvin Bagley, but like... I do think that like last year I looked up the minutes when they played Bogdanovich at the four and they did get absolutely crushed on the glass in those minutes. But now that they drafted Asar Thompson, he impressed me during summer league with the work that he did on the glass. So I feel like if you run lineups where you can throw him out there as well, maybe that's not as big of an issue. I fully expect that they plan on starting Isaiah Stewart and Duran together. I mean, if it were me personally, I would, I would like to see them start the two of them together and then play Isaiah Stewart at the five with lineups uh, that way but that doesn't really seem to be in the card. So I do agree with you that mixing and matching, they have a lot of options that they can go to. Like, I mean, another one that would be fun is the amount of shooters that they have and just playing Cade with a big and then just throwing, you know, two of the grouping of the Monte Morris and the Bogdanovich and Livers and Joe Harris and just letting him see what he can do when he actually has legitimate spacing around him. I think that's the lineup uh, a lot of people in Detroit would like to see. And and you can throw in Cade Cunningham to it as somebody who could help on the glass. I, I don't think as much as Asar Thompson, uh, but Cunningham is bigger for the player type he is. I like where Dan was going, and, and Caitlin, of course, brought stuff too, in terms of like the the permutations and combinations that Monty Williams has at his disposal, like where they can go to some lineups that have credible shooters like surrounding especially Kay Cunningham and I really hope that Monty does some of that at, at times over the course of the season and the Pistons I wouldn't be surprised and Monty Williams got this lucrative long contract if they kind of treat this a little bit more as an experiment in a laboratory I don't know if that's where what Troy Weaver wants but the but I think they could be a team where how experimental he is allowed to be is affected by how well they're doing. So the worst, in some ways, the worst they do 
or the more successful he is with some of these less like less emphasis on the young guys' lineups, maybe he gets a little bit more latitude to do that because it's always an ownership uh, management level decision to an extent. And so how that works and. Then, you know, you can also factor in, you know, how much Killian Hayes are we going to see? How much Wiseman are we going to see? And that, like, likewise, it's partially based on how well they play, but it's also what kind of a thumb is there going to be on the scale? Yeah, I mean, some of this, too, is going to, I mean, particularly Joe Harris, right? Is he How healthy is he going to be? Uh, what can he bring? So whatever you're penciling him in there, uh, it's not completely up to you. And it's also, you know, who counts as a young guy? Uh, it is Marvin Bagley, I mean, sure, age-wise, he's still fairly young, but, you know, he's clearly, uh, you know, past his, his, like, being viewed as a former number two pick and being that level of a prospect. Like, I don't know. I, I say this earnestly. Like, I don't know what the organizational commitment to playing him is. Uh, I think there's a little bit more there for Wiseman, a lot more for Duran, um, a lot more for Stewart, although he already got his money. So that could go the other way. You could say like, hey, we paid you for you to be satisfied. Like if we're experimenting, sometimes you're going to take a back seat. There's a lot of different ways that could go. But I do think, yes, the the fundamental, a fundamental issue facing the Pistons is figuring out uh, what their priorities are and then figuring out how to how to set the lineup based on those. Yeah, I mean, and how good they can be all is going to kind of come down to the defensive end, I think. I mean, that's where they've struggled. I mean, they weren't good on either end of the floor, but, you know, being 27th in defense <laughs> and having a very young big, I think that Duran still has a lot of strides that he needs to make on that end of the floor. During the pre-draft process, you know, I, I remember being enamored watching him switch out, but thinking his court mapping isn't quite where it needs to be. And that showed up, like, just even in games against the Pacers, just because I'm familiar with those players, like the Pacers were pretty much in development mode when those two teams played each other late in the season um, in a home and home or actually both games were in Detroit and just watching Jalen Duran defending Jalen Smith who had one of the worst catch and shoot three-point shooting seasons of anybody in the NBA last year and Duran's you know like biting on pump fakes and Jalen's getting into the lane like some of those types of discipline issues and then also just noticing what some of the communication is and that's not unexpected Duran's very young but like if he doesn't make strides on that end of the floor and they're still as bad defensively as what they've been because I mean I do think there's a very strong case and this is both a credit and somewhat, you know, an issue with the roster as a whole is that Asar Thompson is probably the best perimeter defender on on that team. So and he's a rookie and has yet to play a game yet. So if their defense still looks as squishy as it did last season, then maybe you do have more leeway if you're Monty Williams. Now, if they do make some strides on that end of the floor, then maybe you're more set in what your rotation is and what you're doing. But I, I really think that Jalen Duran's probably going to be the most important swing factor for them early in the year. Something else important on the Pistons that I'm going to be watching this season is that, generally speaking, Cade Cunningham's teams have not really run a ton when he's been on the floor. They were, they were, I think they were slightly above average in terms of the the proportion of plays that they ran in the half court when he was on. But like, it's you don't that hasn't been like the initiating it. Now that could be surrounding talent. He has a very different team this year than his rookie year, which is when he actually you know played. He only played 400 minutes last year. Was dealing with an injury the whole time, and that's one of for me the biggest questions in the entire division is what do we see from Cade Cunningham and what is his third year since he was drafted, but his second. Second, really, hopefully, fuller season, especially when you consider that the surrounding talent is at least conceptually and his head coach more conducive to success than it was before. 
Yeah, I think some of that surrounding talent. Some of that is, you know, being a young player and figure things out. I also have a question of like, is he a point guard, right? Is he going to be the one pushing the pace? Is, is he going to be playing a lot with Jay Ivey or, or, or Monte Morris? Is there always going to be one of those guys out there in the court with him? Um, I don't know. I don't really. That's one of the things I'm interested in, too. And not just in the half court, but to what degree uh, is Cunningham driving the entire offense? He, he's obviously the focal point, the franchise player, all of those things. Um, but he can be that without being the offensive initiator, or he can be that with being the offensive initiator. And I'm not sure where he is at this stage of his career. And uh, honestly, even what trajectory he's on. Well, I mean, if we want to use all important highlight clips from <laughs> Team USA select team scrimmages, he was one of the more impressive players there. If you watch the full like half hour thing that got uploaded to YouTube, he does look like he's he's added body strength. I mean, there was possessions where he was absorbing full court pressure from Mikel Bridges and keeping him at bay and then really being able to jail guys and get into the lane. He has a lot of craft there. His handle's just a little bit loose and maybe with added physical strength, you can see a little bit more there. I like him on ball. Like if that's that's what I would be doing if I was the Pistons and really be leaning into that in part because I also like Jaden Ivey better uh, out of second side pick and rolls and being able to attack into cuts off of catches from the weak side. I, that's how I felt about him during the pre-draft process. And two, like if you look at the way that Monty Williams and these two players are not, you know, foils of each other but look at how he balanced Chris Paul and Devin Booker and now this being Cade and Jaden Ivey like I do like the idea of running some of the same like you know gut Chicago actions that they would run with Devin Booker where you know he's standing at the block and he'll come in and get like a screen a quick screen from Chris Paul setting or eight and setting a pin down and then getting the the ball from Chris Paul and use like a quick hairpin turn to get to the rim I think that that would be dynamite with Jaden Ivey Purdue in fact did that so I, I kind of just like that arrangement a little bit better but I also think too that if Ivey does have the ball something that maybe they could lean into is using Kate more as a screener and really getting Jaden then potentially some slower guards that he can be able to beat in space but I think that's the arrangement that I like I don't know how they're envisioning that but it will depend too on you know last year he only played 12 games I don't know how much his leg was impacting him before they actually shut him down certainly it probably was but he sees unders like when they played the Thunder Lou Dort was going under everything Drew Holiday went under everything you know how he handles that is is going to impact him as a pick and roll maestro to a degree and that I think is in part where tightening up the handle will help him but I hope they look at using Cade more as an engine especially with some of what we said before about being able to surround him with shooters and really be able to see what he can do in space. Speaking of going under pick and rolls Asar Thompson's offensive role on this team is going to be fascinating and, and he's going to be a work in progress like the Asar Thompson well not he you know he played for overtime elite so you might think that he's like super duper young he is young but he's not like Jalen Duran was younger meaningfully younger as a as a rookie than Asar Thompson will be but part of what made Thompson pop for me and this actually could be a nice synergy with Cade the way that we hoped Jay Nivey can be of pushing in transition is if Thompson's jump shot is going to take time. And I think that it will, I don't, I don't think that's going to be there. Then he's better on ball too. And how you square this up in terms of minutes, how you square it up in terms of role. And like, so for, for a lot of these guys, and I mean, you could even, you could, you know, you could give the ball to Bogdanovich a little bit. I don't think you really want to do that with Harris, but like how they navigate all of this. And, and again, the, the tension between, having the best possible team for this year and not only evaluating but the young players, but putting them in a position to succeed. And so, I mean, Asar Thompson potentially being their best perimeter defender, but also being somebody that we could see opposing teams help off 
on the uh, on the other end, it's 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 a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I mean, this circles back to the Cade discussion. I, I agree with Caitlin. I, I like him more on the ball. I disagree. I like Jaden Ivey more on the ball. I like uh, Sar Thompson more on the ball. And th- those are obviously all in a vacuum. They can't all be on the ball. Um, Challenge and, accepted. And so that's where it gets tricky for Cade, right? Because uh, if you want to surround him with that spacing, how are you going to do that by playing Ivy and Thompson? And as we talked about two bigs, there's going to be a challenge there. Um, you know, you can get Bogdanovich out there. The playing time you want, and especially to get some of the young guys playing together, uh, it's going to be tough. Now, I do think, I do think sometimes we overrate like traditional floor spacing just in terms of who can shoot. Um, there are ways to overcome some of that through through just being active, through playing with energy. I, I think uh, Ivy is good at that. I think Thompson could be great at that. Uh, I think. Um, uh, Isaiah Stewart is great at that. So so there are some ways to overcome that. But in terms of the traditional shooting floor spacing, I don't know if it's going to be there around Kate Cunningham like we'd like to see. I think with Asar, like one thing that stood out about him in Summer League is in the games when Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duran played, I thought he was very unselfish in good ways <laughs> and that he deferred to them. He's very good at filling in cracks. He eats up space. And there were times where like when he was on ball where he could, you know, use a hezzy and what his burst is, like he's getting by like Moses Brown and drop coverage and pretty easily with like him several feet back off of him but like he was also you know kind of driving into some crowds with the pick and roll like I kind of like him better again off ball and being able to do more as a secondary playmaker I don't know how many ball screens you'll be seeing him get with Detroit next year I I would I would be surprised if you see a lot I think you know he's most likely going to come off the bench although I I wouldn't have been opposed to doing the whole you know playing bogey at the four and playing a Sar Thompson at the three because of what he is as a rebounder but like I think that you'll see him doing more where he's you know the more the author of his own usage and acting more as a connector and i think that that role will play well for him and then maybe they can build that up as part of his development moving forward but yeah i mean i that's the way that i would envision the three of them i wouldn't be surprised if you do see that starting lineup even if it's not the closing lineup okay i want to end the piston section with a question we'll start with dan the five player lineup for the pistons that you most want to see not saying they should start not saying they should close you pick the five players combination that you want all right, so we're going to have Kate Cunningham out there. We're going to have Asar Thompson out there. Still got a lot of flexibility around that. Uh, we have Monty Morris. So we're going to have Kate, I guess, as the somewhat nominal two. Monty is the one. Asar is the three. Uh, we'll do Bogdanovich at the four. And uh, Isaiah Stewart as the five. And, uh, you know, it com- it's not the, the youngest lineup they can put out there, but I think that's going to be putting their key young players in position that could be during at the five too. I don't have a strong preference there. I, I enjoy watching Isaiah Stewart more just with, with the way he hustles. It's not like Duran doesn't either. One of those would be just fine to me. You put your young players in position to succeed. Uh, you see how good this team can be. I, I think that's a lineup that's going to give you the best chance of success. And if you can succeed with that, great. You can, you can tinker a little. And if you can't, well, then you, you know where you stand. Yeah, I think just as a like a wrinkle lineup, if it's not going to be a starting or a closing one, I'd like to see Cade and Monte Morris and Bogey and Livers and Duran just to give him as much space as he can to to make to wheel and deal in space, and then just as a. I again, I would start this lineup: Kate, Ivy, Asar, Boyan, Duran. Mine, I, I don't think they're going to go to it a lot, but the the idea is basically to evaluate Kate and Asar, Kate Cunningham, Asar Thompson. Bogdanovich and then either Livers or Joe Harris, basically whoever's healthier between those two. And then probably like like Dan, Isaiah Stewart or Jern at the five, either one of those. But yeah, it's like the situation of like trying all these things out. But the beauty of an 82 game season is not only 
are you do have a lot of minutes to fill, but also players are going to get hurt. You're going to have opportunities to sort through it. And we'll also, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. We'll see the Pistons potentially change over their roster some with trades and everything. Like we haven't even brought up Alec Burks really in this. And Alec Burks could be a part of a lot of this stuff too. So again, I'm throwing that in and then I'm throwing it out. Lots more to discuss, but first a message from FanDuel. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. That is fantastic. And now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use, and you can be on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Boston. Kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss FanDuel official partner of the NFL must be 21 and over and present in Massachusetts first online real money wager only $10 first deposit require bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt restrictions apply see terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook hope is here gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support play it smart from the start gamesensema.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234 NFL Sunday ticket offer ends 9-28-23 no refunds terms and embargoes apply $100 off Sunday ticket NFL Sunday ticket not YouTube TV YouTube TV base plan required to watch YouTube TV redemption requires a Google account and current form of payment commercial use excluded subscription renews cancel anytime and then I want to go to the Cleveland Cavaliers who actually had the best cleaning the glass net rating in this entire division last year they had a very dispiriting unceremonious playoff exit and the primary thing to me that they did in the offseason was trying to solve the fifth starter closer issue. They still have Isaac, Isaac Okoro. It's going to do that. But they brought in George Niang, who I think is going to be more of a bench player, and Max Struess from the Heat, structured as a sign-in trade where they let Chetty Osman go to the... They sent him to the Spurs to facilitate the salary matching. How do you guys feel about Kobe Altman using kind of using his flexibility to bring in those two players? I guess we'd start with Kalen. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that they did. They fixed the easy stuff, right? Like when you look at Max Struess, like just looking at some of their position, their possessions from that series against New York and how much defenders are pinching in, which that's part of the New York scheme to be flooding over to the strong side anyways. But especially for Evan Mobley and with Darius Garland, I think those two are probably the ones that were impacted the most. And that, you know, if Donovan Mitchell is getting trapped and you're throwing it to Evan Mobley on the short roll, and then somebody's helping clear off the weak side from Karis LeVert, and then you're looking in the other corner, and there's a Coro, and nobody cares. Like those short roll decisions become a lot more challenging, and I do think some of that falls on Evan Mobley. I think he was record scratching a lot, and wasn't really making quite the right reads that he needs to make, and his offense outside the restricted area is going to have to grow. But those decisions are harder when people are plugging that short roll pass, and people are sinking in on you of where the ball needs to get placed. I mean, I think he was 0 of 10 as the roll man in that series with two turnovers. Like. Oof. They had to. They had to do something to fix their spacing, and it's not just because you know a defender is going to stay glued to Max Struess necessarily. It's that if you're seeing that same s- scheme again, Max Struess is going to hit the shot. And in addition to that, like he's just a much better movement shooter than what Osman was. Like Osman doesn't always have the best feel for sliding into passing windows and creating passing lanes. And Struess certainly runs hot and cold. We saw that during the finals against the Nuggets. But he takes a very high difficulty of shots. This is a guy who, like, if Jimmy Butler and bam are riding a side pick and roll you're going to see him make a danny green cut cutting along the baseline to the strong side corner to manipulate that tag he can take one dribble into the corner and turn and shoot opposite from the direction that he just ran from like the Cavs, 
did not have. Like, look at their roster last year. They could not put out three credible shooters at the same time with any lineup. So between having Struess and then also adding Yang, maybe you can do a little bit with Yang at the four and certain bench iterations and along with Dean Wade where maybe you can stagger Mobley and Jarrett Allen a little bit more. I just think that... Is it super flashy? No, but I think that it answers what their problems were in a compelling way. I would have liked, in theory, to see them get somebody who uh, was a bigger defender on the wing than Struess. I just don't I don't know who that player was. That player probably wasn't available for all the reasons Caitlin just said. Offensively, Struess makes all the sense as that fifth starter. Uh, he's not exactly what I was hoping for for this team defensively, though. I, I do defense. Th- oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think defensively, like, you know, just looking at Eric Spolster's decisions, there's a reason why Max Struess replayed, replaced Duncan Robinson in the rotation, despite what Doc, Duncan Robinson makes. But, like, Struess actually defended up quite a bit. He played power forward for them some. Like, even in the game one against the Bucks, he was defending Brooke Lopez. The Bucks oh. were not taking advantage of that, <laughs> but he was defending Brooke Lopez. I, 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 I just want to clarify, yes, I, I think he's, he's, he's capable of doing it. I think he's going to give it his all defensively. I just think at a certain point, especially you get deep in the playoffs, which is where the Cavs should be eyeing, I think his height is going to be an issue. I think like he's doing the very best he can to defend within the size he has. Like I, I'd happily, if, as the Cavs, I'd, I'd love to have him on this contract, love to have him on this team rather than not have him, rather than wait for some hypothetical player. But if I'm just kind of drawing up like what fills what they need, I think he's closer to a perfect fit offensively and going to do the best he can defensively and be hopefully good enough, but is, is not the answer for, for what they were looking for defensively in that spot in all matchups. And that's fair because they are going to have to defend, you know, straight across the line more often than what they were last year, right? Because you can't, you're not going to have a Coro out there in the starting lineup to be able to put on opposing ones. That's going to have to be Garland. And Garland did a little bit better there during the regular season. I thought there was some pretty rough spots, um, especially in game four when they just outright assigned him to Jalen Brunson. But it puts more pressure on Evan Mobley, right? Because of what you just yes. said. Like, he's going to have to do more actual defending of wings. Like, if you are playing the Heat, Evan Mobley's most likely going to have to defend Jimmy Butler. And a way where last year it was more like using him as a weak side roamer and that was a big part of Cleveland's scheme so I mean it, it definitely does there is going to be a give and take of you know fixing problems offensively but also having to rely a lot more on Evan Mobley making a leap on both ends of the floor which Mobley can defend in isolation but you're just going to be asking him to do it a lot more than what they were last year that ties in with one of the bigger picture things I try not to you know recency bias and everything else is that Cleveland as presently constructed or as you know constructed last year I don't think they fundamentally change this like they are a team that I think works better in the regular season just the dispersal of talent and everything else than not only like they I mean they lost to the Knicks but like you Dan you brought up the idea of like the later rounds of the playoffs where their limited point of attack defense and the they have guys like George Niang who I like as a regular season player that they can flush out some different ideas for JB Bickerstaff rotationally in the regular season but is he going to be in a closing five that's probably a lot to ask and they already have you know two front court players that are significantly better than him depending on how we want to count Struce so maybe in this iteration they're more of a regular season team than a playoff team though they can do better than they did last year obviously I don't think anybody's going to dispute that But then it becomes this other kind of lingering thing that I don't want to dwell on. But 
Donovan Mitchell, you know, and I, I use the phrase defining success a lot. And the idea a lot of times from this is from a management perspective. And it's what kind of team do we want to be? What do we accept? What do we not want? Because you make these moves on the margins, you know, how do you how do you use your mid-level exception, all these things? It's similar for players. Is Donovan Mitchell, who is going into after this year, if he doesn't sign an extension, he'll be going into the last guaranteed year of his contract because he could opt out in 25. Is he cool with that kind of team or does he say to the Cavs, I may stay, I may not, but this is what I'm looking for because they're like, that is a shadow. That is a consideration on this full season. Yeah. To tie both those last two things you said together. um, Yes, this should be a better playoff team. and, And I think that primarily falls on the young players just to play better. Evan Mobley can do more. He can play with more force. He can grab more rebounds. Uh, similar Jared Allen. Uh, Darius Garland can, can defend better. He's going to have to do it. Like I, I think the Cavs are asking their young players to step up, and I think they're all capable. And so they're, they're just going to have to do it as part of the maturation. It's part of you go through a loss like you had against the Knicks, um, you know, where you come in with home court advantage, but the Knicks were the, the tougher, more physical, more ready team. They smack you around, and you've got you've to bounce back from that and so i i love the talent of this team's young players and if they respond in those ways i think it looks far more encouraging for donovan mitchell to want to stay will he want to stay i mean there's the market issue there's, i don't know what donovan mitchell wants but it's going to be way more inviting if those players step up and if they have a second chance if they've already gone through it once and don't feel the challenge and don't respond then it's gonna look far less appealing to them on the bulls front though the only team we haven't really discussed yet i i'm interested in the addition of Javon Carter, in part because like we we talked about Patrick Beverly, brought him up a little bit before, and how they played much better since they brought him in. And the Bulls now, even without Lonzo Ball, and we I think we can have it unfortunately as an assumption that he will not play in the twenty three twenty four season. They have a lot of eggs in the guys who can defend well from the guard size spots, but can't really run an offense basket. And that, to me, can be justified. They have DeRozan and Levine who are who can who can initiate offense, and they have a lot of these other things. But it is so striking to me that the front office used their resources to get even more players that kind of fill that box. I mean, to me, a lot of this is a bet on Patrick Williams. It's uh, sure we're, we're not we're not looking for power forward help. That's not a whole. Uh, we're bet, betting on Patrick Williams to become the player they they've really bet on him to become uh picking him that high starting him uh at, at times force feeding him touches uh i don't know he's he's got some raw talent i don't think he's shown enough where i feel super confident that he's going to be a really good player but it's definitely possible i mean on the patrick williams front like is he gonna make that i mean this feels like year three of like putting him on a breakout candidate list but like <laughs> is that gonna happen for him as long as zach and damar and Vucevic are all on the same roster and you're continuing to ask him to be like the least developed part of his game is being a floor spacer like he he hits those shots at a decent enough clip but he's still like the bulls have a lot of players on this roster who are very reticent shooters and i think in certain circumstances what danny brought up about lonzo him no longer being there as the connective tissue to kind of provide that between their big three players which is clearly missing but 
also, like, they have guys who don't want to shoot. Like, that's not necessarily a Billy Donovan issue. They have, you know, DeSumo, who doesn't even see a closeout, and he'll just drive into the lane. They have Patrick Williams, who doesn't shoot particularly on high volume. Even Vucevic, at times, can be, you know, there's moments when they need him to pick and pop and shoot, and he doesn't shoot out of the pop, despite the fact that he hits those shots at a decent enough clip. They're a very low-volume, three-point shooting team. And I think the one thing with Javon Carter is, like, and what they did with Patrick Beverly and they did perform better is that he also is very willing to shoot in transition, which I think the bulls as a team attempted like four transition threes per game last year and are made four transition threes per game last year. And Javon Carter made like 1.2. So just having him to be out there and bomb and shoot, I think makes somewhat of a difference, but just like on the Patrick front, like as long as those three guys are still on the roster, you're basically asking him to, you know, maybe be a little bit more attack aggressive, attacking the glass, be able to, find his own usage as a cutter when like maybe the three of them like one of the sets that the Bulls seem to always want to run at the beginning of games is is they give it to Vucevic at the elbow and then Levine can kind of cut off that and like a UCLA cut action if they don't get that then he immediately sets the pin down for DeMar DeRozan to get the ball and get the handoff from Vuce and play downhill so it's those three players all on one side of the floor and you have Patrick Williams on the other like will he be a more active cutter um just those types of stuff like that's what you're gonna have to ask from him because I don't think he's gonna I mean he, he has and I don't think he's going to be getting a lot of touches in secondary pick and roll situations or even a lot of creation reps as long as all three of them are still on the team and the minutes when he's out there with Levine have not been super productive so like I don't I mean two things that did stand out that he had very good going for him is that he played in every game last year and defensively I do think that he made some strides for them at least against top assignments in certain games but I just I'm not convinced that the breakout's going to happen with him as long as the roster is what it is I mean to me a lot of it it's not even and um, the offensively with the ball, that that would be nice. But it, it, it's rebounding more. It, it, it's making more of a defensive impact. Some of it is offensively. Yes. Like, is he to the point? Uh, I don't know. Can, can you run pick and roll with him and Levine or him and DeRozan? Um, I, I don't know. I like I. I'm not expecting these things, but but supposedly he has the talent to be more of an impact player, and he's just so often out there not doing so much. And I, I think there are just so many different ways he could assert himself where where the Bulls were used to seeing, like, I don't know, they're giving him, they've been giving him every opportunity. They started him 65 of those 82 games last year. Uh, th- they let go a couple of guys who are getting minutes at power forward, Javante Green, Derek Jones Jr., um, I, I just I just feel like they just keep waiting for him to assert himself more. Um, but yes, that is a very good point that this is several years into the Patrick Williams breakout candidate watch. It I is. like what you said. Go ahead. I like what, what you just said there about not doing so much when he's not involved in the action because that feels like a common theme across the whole roster. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, they got outscored in the minutes when DeMar and Vucevic and Levine were on the court last year. And, like, if you break that down by quarter and look at where the usage is, like, it feels like the general trend for them is that they try to establish Vucevic early in the first quarter, play through him. Then in the middle two quarters, they play much more through Levine. And then in the fourth quarter, it becomes all DeRozan. And the fourth quarter is when they're most productive. Their net rating is <laughs> eight, eight points per 100 when they're doing it with DeRozan they're getting outscored in in the first when they're doing that with Vucevic and like a stat that I looked up that I found very telling on this whole matter especially with what their half court offense is is Vucevic had 174 possessions last year where he made a pass out of the post the Bulls generated 16 shots off cuts out of those passes (laughs) and none of them none of them were Zach Levine so Vucevic never assisted 
Zach Levine on a pass out of the post on a cut. And like Zach just isn't super active there. So then it kind of goes back to like Vucevic is capable of being a hub. We saw him do this in Orlando for many years. He's a decent passer. We've seen him do this on the on it, the FIBA World Cup with Montenegro. He had one game where he made two passes to a teammate off a cut. So like you have to kind of be able to assert like, is, is this somewhat buy-in? Is Levine just not very great at being able to find those types of cracks on his own? And then if he's not, are you going to incorporate more like split cut actions that directly show him where he can go so that you can get more movement going? Because this feels like a very common theme. And then that kind of goes to the Tory Craig signing. Tory Craig has played with Nikola Jokic, or I mean, yeah, with Jokic. He's played with DeMontis Sabonis in Indiana. He has experience cutting around those types of guys. Like, I don't think signing Tory Craig is going to be a savior type thing, but AK obviously has experience from having been in Denver when Tory Craig was there. Maybe that's somebody who he is an intuitive cutter. He does attack the offensive glass. The Bulls were a very bad offensive glass or offensive rebounding team. I think he does address certain needs there and then just offensively finding ways, more ways where those three guys can actually play off of each other, which doesn't seem like it happens enough. I, I know we've been keeping most of these like a uh, smaller picture about this season, but big picture, man, I really, really think the bulls missed an opportunity to blow it up. Uh, yeah. I I'm willing, I'm willing to admit that, that they were better than I thought they would be uh, when, when they made these moves to build this team. But with Lonzo Ball's injury, I just think he was so integral to what they do. I just think we're never going to see the team they had in mind uh, ever again. And so you just got to say, hey, we tried it. It didn't work. And it's and you can say it's because of Lonzo Ball's injury. And so you could trade DeRozan for value. You could trade Levine for value. You could re- not re-sign Vucevic. All of a sudden, you're sleek. You're young. You know, you, you don't have the, these major investments. I, I just think it was, it was right there for a quick pivot into uh, a rebate to trade Alex Caruso for good value at this point. Like, I, I think that would have been so easy for them to pivot into. Now they re-signed Vucevic, and now I think they're they're right back down this this path of, we're probably going to be talking about them in a similar way next year. And on that on that front, I wrote a whole piece for The Athletic last year, kind of around the deadline, talking about how the there are these two theories of why you do a teardown. One is... That you you know the assets that you that you get and the other is improving your draft pick and and I talked about how the timing last year was actually bad because they didn't have their own pick it was so lightly protected going to that was the magic yeah going to the magic that they, it was unlikely that they could assure that they would keep it however the twenty four pick they have whole hog they have they have a, and then their twenty five that they owe in the from back from the DeRozan sign and trade that's only top ten protected. So theoretically, if Arturis and the front office had pivoted this past offseason, they would have been able to like build back up if they draft well and everything else reasonably quickly. And now, I mean, we'll see what happens with the DeRozan extension. My instinct is that it actually is going to happen. We'll see. You know, that'll be something that dates this podcast a little bit. But you're right, Dan, that there was there was a point that they could have transitioned and now that they chose not to, it is possible to happen later, but it depends more on how other teams evaluate their resources. And we're getting closer. You know, Crusoe still has a still has two years on this contract. De, DeRozan has this is the last year, and then Levine still has a long time. But Vooch, you know, three years, sixty million. I don't know how people are going to feel about that in six months. I mean, say, same with Levine, right? You you want to if you're going to trade him, you want to do it at a time he last looked reasonably healthy. Sure, uh, I think we've covered a lot, but I'll I'll throw it out and Dan, if you have any first, I'll throw it to you. Are there any moves we haven't discussed, front office, coaching, or 
personnel that you want to bring up that you want to discuss or, or can we is there anything is there anything we've missed basically well my biased answer is monte morris flint from flint getting mm-hmm. traded to the pistons my less biased answer we talked about it some but the bucks wearing mike budenholzer uh well in the midst of championship contention a coach who helped them get a championship i think he is a phenomenal regular season coach Whatever problems he has as a playoff coach, he's clearly a good enough coach to win a championship with. That is proven. And to hire a first-time head coach to try and extend this window. Uh, we talked about the age. This, this is this is getting toward the end of this window. And I think it still would have been open with Budenholzer. I think it's still open with Griffin. But that's such a massive shift in what the Bucks are doing. And I have no idea how it's going to turn out. That's the exact move that I would have brought up as well. Adrian Griffin, I think, is probably the most. And I don't always like putting that much emphasis on coaching, but at the time when they're doing it, and because it is an unknown, and like I, I do think that there's things that the Bucks. It sounds like this was as much about like I'm not saying that Giannis had a role in it, but the fact that Giannis did, you know, kind of give a stamp of approval and what some other players have said in the aftermath of this. It sounds like this was kind of a vibes thing as much as some of what they were doing schematically. But I mean, obviously, you can watch that Heat Bucks game back and see that like there's things offensively particularly at the end of games that could be better like if the heat make the adjustment to put jimmy butler on brooke lopez then you know i don't know that you really want to be running a lot of pick and rolls between Giannis and brooke lopez (laughs) to try to score while the heat are storming back and you're just getting jimmy switched right onto Giannis on ball or you're having drew holiday trying to do a back down while everyone else stands there until he ends up losing the ball those types of things where like again to take it back to the raptors like the bucks do a lot of ice isolations and the Raptors do a lot of isolations but one thing that differentiates them is the Raptors do a lot of early work and they tend to seem to identify exactly where the mismatch is quicker whereas the Bucks are doing a lot of isolating and it's kind of like do I really want Giannis isolating against Jimmy right now like this is the combination that you're going to so I don't think they always play advantage basketball I guess is the way that I would put it and then just like it sounds from what is coming out up there that they want to see more ball pressure they want to see more tempo they want to see more movement and that's going to require changes on both ends of the floor and I'm just interested to see how that dynamic's going to go between what has very clearly in the past been we want to surprise we want to surround Giannis with as much shooting as possible we want people not to be able to put bricks up of, of you know a wall and now it seems like they are more interested in upgrading the athleticism which makes sense because it is an aging roster I just I don't know where the balance is going to be for that and, and to some extent I mean something we didn't talk about is who the fifth starter is that they put out there with the yeah. four will kind of say a lot about what the identity is and how they're envisioning how that team's going to play. Absolutely. And we can jump to, we well, we could cover these more briefly. The off the other parts of the off season review. Um, who do we think is going to be the best newcomer to their team? My clear answer in this division is Bruce Brown. Am I missing something? No, it's gotta be right. I, I don't even know who's, I don't think anybody else is close. Really? Because like, I feel like now I'm going to get outcasted from Pacers Twitter Uh-oh. and my own coverage because I, I actually think the most impactful newcomer is, is going to be Max Struess. Ooh. I, I just think that based on everything we were seeing in that playoff series and how much they did not have an answer there, I just think that that addresses the easy the most. And like for the Pacers, Bruce Brown makes a ton of sense. I totally understand why they signed him and he's going to be as malleable for them as their as his contract's going to be. And to some extent, that's something we didn't really talk about. The fact that he has that team option means that they could use him to potentially acquire another player if something comes about this season. It's just that, you know, they were starting Andrew Nemhard in that spot and Andrew Nemhard had a 
a very impressive summer league, in my opinion. And now, depending upon what they do with TJ McConnell, it's possible that Andrew might end up with a smaller move in part because of this move. And there is some overlap between the two of them. Um, Andrew's very sticky at the point of attack. He did a lot of impressive things defensively. He has um, ability as a secondary playmaker. I would like to see him play more out of ball screens, but it is possible that Bruce might squeeze Andrew a little bit and where the patients are at their timeline. I think I would prefer to see them leaning more into their their rookie a little bit there. But I mean, I think Bruce Brown's going to be very good for the Pacers. There's a lot of different roles he can fill. I just think in terms of making something make more sense, I think I would probably lean toward Max Strews. You, you talked me into it being close. I still think it's Bruce Brown, but you have convinced me that it was close. <laughs> I also, I like the idea of like the marginal difference between them, where Max Strews is replacing a real shortcoming, whereas Andrew Nemhart had a really good rookie year. And I'm, I'm interested in, in what he can do. And with the Pacers, there's a weird parallel with the Pistons in that they have a lot of different combinations that they can go to. And over the course of the season, Carlisle is going to have that opportunity. We just don't know exactly who and exactly when. Last question in kind of the off-season review part, and we can start this with Dan. Not the rookie that you think is going to be best because a lot of us know that rookies are very rarely positive players. The rookie that you are most excited to see in the NBA this year. That's Asar Thompson. Uh, his combination of athleticism and feel for the game is uh, matched by one guy, and that's a men Thompson that I've seen. In <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know. I'm curious. I, I'm far more excited to see a men because I think a men just uncorks his athleticism in a more forceful way. Uh, Asar being his twin, I, I bet could do more of that than we saw. I'm not sure if it's a mentality thing. I'm not sure if it was a role thing on the overtime elite team. Um, I just haven't seen him gear up in the same way, but I'm curious if he can. Uh, But in a lot of ways, it's unfair to hold him to that standard of, oh, uh, you're not quite the same nuclear athletic athletic as a men Thompson. You're just one small notch below that. He is still an awesome athlete. Uh, Great feels a passer as Caitlin got into sticks his nose in as a rebounder. Uh, I I just feel like uh, is going to be real exciting from the get go. I think SR is the answer here as well. I mean, the, the Bulls and the and the Bucks. It, it it's really debatable if their rookies are even going to see any floor time this year. But um, between SR and Jarris Walker, what I will say for SR is, you know, he's he's a terror in transition, and just watching him in the games after Jaden Ivey and Jalen Duran were no longer available, when I credit him for being, you know, unselfish and kind of deferring to them, is when they played the Raptors, I believe, in summer league. Like he just has these extraordinary play moments where, like, I do agree with. Um, um, Dan in comparison to his own brother, but like he has a moment in that game against the Raptors where he blocks Moses Brown at his high point, like rotating to him on a rotation. And then the very first play of the game, he was chasing Grady Dick around a middle pin down, forced Grady to go to a one dribble pull up and then blocked that shot with his weak hand. Like it's just those types of special moments on defense. And then like he just knows where he's supposed to be. Like you're seeing him do X out rotations. He's very sound with closeouts. Like, yeah, he had 14 assists to 11 turnovers. He probably needs to be, you know, cleaning some of that up and driving into the crowds and some of that stuff wasn't great but like he's gonna have a few moments per game where you're just gonna marvel at it and be like wow that's a thing that he just did for me rookie years are mostly about flashes the idea being that there's a lot that they have to learn and especially i mean one of the other reasons that Asar hobson is going to be so important is the transition from overtime elite to the nba that's something that we haven't really seen yet and what works what doesn't what does he carry over and 
it, it's interesting that we uh, that he plays in the same division as Lonzo when Lonzo is healthy enough to play because one of the things that I loved about the Thompson twins together is their combination of unselfishness and the speed of their decision making. They they're looking for ways to help and they're processing things more quickly. The analogy I've made before with them, and some of this might just be the way they played up tempo, is it's sort of like when those and I, I'm not an expert in this field, but like the the internet poker players started coming in and they had just seen a lot more hands. And for whatever reason, the Thompson twins, they just have their processing speed for guys that have other limitations. To me, it seems better than most. It's not better than everyone. We're not talking about, you know, I don't know, Chris Paul or like LeBron James or something like that. But among like 19 year old kids, 20 year old kids, they're some of the better ones I've ever seen. Absolutely. And they're definitely students of the game. I mean, they talk about how much they just watch and want to learn and absorb as much about basketball as they can, which is cool. We can transition into the kind of the season preview part of this, and I'll start with Caitlin. Rank the Central Division teams one to five. You can use whatever criteria you want. Just tell the people what you're using. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll just go on what their records will be. I think I'll just go on predicted that and rank them that way. So I would go Milwaukee, Cleveland, the Pacers, Chicago, Detroit. And I'm leaning like the Bulls had a better record than the Pacers last year. I quoted or cited what they did with Patrick Beverly. I'm just not convinced that that roster is going to stay intact um, completely past the trade deadline, but we'll see. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear pay, uh, to have the Bucks one, Cavs two, and Pistons five. Uh, I, I agree that that three four is the close call. I want to pick the Pacers. I mean, they're the young, exciting, fun, up and coming team. Uh, the Bulls are kind of stale, but I guess I I, I would have to predict Chicago. Um, just the baseline of you know these are somewhat similar teams from last year i do think the the pacers upgraded but but the bulls were better last year they uh they won 40 games the pacers 35 and i i understand indiana shifted things down the stretch but on top of you look by uh just point difference and expected record the bulls had 44 wins the pacers just 33 so even a bigger difference there i wouldn't be surprised either way i have these teams in the same tier at the the pacers again I'd like to to be the Pacers. It'd be fun for it to be the Pacers, but I I think I got to be a little bit of a killjoy and put the Bulls third. I think that the Bucks Cavs decision is closer than maybe you guys do. I in in part because I this idea that the Cavs might be a better regular season team than postseason team, but. Chris Milton hopefully will play more of the year. And while it is entirely possible that one of the older Bucks misses time too, it's entirely possible the one of the Cavs does as well. And the transition from Budenholzer to Griffin, I think, will affect things, but I don't think it's going to like lop six wins off of their their expectation. But why I'm picking the Pacers over the Bulls is a, is a point that we haven't brought up as much in this, which is the games played for Chicago's best players who we expect to be a part of the team this year, so that exempts Lonzo Ball, who's not playing this year. DeRozan, 74. Levine, 77. Vooch, 82. Williams, 82. Desunmu played 80 games. Caruso played 67. Like, we talked a lot about the Lonzo Ball injury and how it affected their team, and that's just, we baked that into the cake this year. The Bulls need their best players to be healthy. They have been durable overall over the last few years. Whereas the Pacers were less healthy last year and they got deeper. So they could, they, they can, with, you know, neither of these teams is great at withstanding stuff, but I think that I, I'll go, I'll go Pacers there. And then there is a chance that the Pistons should shake in. I don't think so, though. I think, I think the divisions in this, the separations in this division, I don't want to use the word division in two different contexts, are more clear than some others. Dan, how many teams from the Central make the playoffs? 
I'll say three. I think the Bucks and Cavs are about locks. And then I'll say one other spot, most likely for the Bulls or Pacers. But I think even the Pistons have a non-zero chance. How about you, Caitlin? I would go with three. I think maybe that's me being overestimating either the Pacers or the Bulls if the Bulls roster stays intact. Because, I mean, I think what you said is almost a little bit like I lean towards you being somewhat of a negative that the Bulls roster was as healthy as it was and that they still got outscored with their best players on the floor. And while I do think that their periphery moves make those three players make a little bit more sense in combination with each other. The fact that their defense is as good as it is and that they have quite possibly the best collection of point of attack defenders in the NBA, that typically leads to regular season winning when you have a sustainable defense. And then the Pacers are kind of the opposite in that, you know, they play at this breakneck speed and that can be really hard during the regular season to defend as well. So I guess it depends what would happen in a play-in tournament. I think that's probably where both teams would find themselves if the Bulls stay intact to that point. But I think that one of them could probably get out of that. So I think I'll go with the Bucks and the Cavs and then either one of the Pacers or the Bulls making it out of the plan. I don't see it happening for the Pistons because I just don't believe that their defense is going to improve enough for them to get there. Three seems most likely, though two is pretty pretty close there, especially, I, I, Caitlin, I agree with your framing that the play-in might be the way that the third team makes it in or doesn't make it in as the case may be. So I would go three, then two, then four. Um, one, I mean, there are two teams in this division that should make it, and the five, I mean, that almost never happens. It, there's a chance it might this year in a different division, but probably not. So, I and I haven't gone through necessarily like, oh, well, the, you know, the hard thing, though, for me with this, you know, four, kind of four versus two, is that there are a lot of other good teams in the Eastern Conference, and like I, I think it's kind of hard for me to imagine both the Bulls and the the Pacers being like 45, 46 win teams, like really clearing the bar, which is what it would take. So yeah, three, I, I don't, I think it's, I'm pretty confident it's not going to be four, but so three, then two. And we can yeah, go, go, go I was just, just going to say agree on two being closer than mm-hmm. four. We'll close this out. I'm going to start with Caitlin. I don't necessarily mean this in terms of players that are going to become stars or superstars. There aren't that many players that ever do that in a given year. And it's sometimes really hard to predict. The threshold for this is players that you think will be talking about meaningfully differently a year from now than we are at the moment. I mean, I think the first one is a person that we need to be talking differently about than we are at the moment is Evan Mobley. Mm -hmm. And I think the stage is set for that to happen. I mean, I think the way that I would put it in the playoffs is that the Cavs played tall. They didn't play big. So if they're going to have two bigs on the floor, they need to play a lot bigger than what they did in the New York series. And that starts with Mobley. I mean, I think we already, I already kind of touched on this about like the role man possessions and what he was doing at the short role and being able to process that. But it kind of goes beyond that too, because, you know, I think that they would like to see Darius Garland shooting more threes and being a bit more involved than he was in that series. But when you watch it, like the Knicks were trapping him on those pick and rolls and they needed more out of Evan Mobley um, when they had that odd man advantage. And then, you know, when Garland wasn't involved in the pick and roll they were top locking him off the ball one very easy way to combat that would be to use a turn screen and get him into a handoff with Mobley so can Mobley do more as a DHO operator can he start making people somewhat respect him in that short roll space so that it isn't as attractive to not even be coming up to tag him can he make the right reads if defenders do help so that he's actually finding Max Struess or whoever else is out on the floor with him and then you know making those strides defensively where like I said he's already proven a lot and what he can do in isolation but if he's having to defend and bigger wings more like them overcoming what they did in that series. I think a lot of it is going to hinge on Evan Mobley. So 
I think that's where I would start. And then another guy that I would bring up and now Pacer fans can like me again is I think a very clear <laughs> candidate. I think a very clear candidate here is Obi Toppin. Yes. Um, just because of how the Pacers used Benedict Matherin last year, I think it's fairly likely that it will be a camp battle who starts at the four between Jarris Walker and Obi Toppin. And because they chose to bring Matherin off the bench for a, most of the season last year, I think it's possible that they'll also do the same um, approach with Jarris Walker. So if Obi Toppin is a starter, like he's going to be going from a team where he wasn't getting on the floor because Tibbs wants to play with a rim protector. He didn't want to play. He better. And, you know, with the Knicks, he screamed less than ever. He had fewer paint touches than ever. He took more of his shots than threes than ever. I don't think that's what he's going to be asked to do with the Pacers. And there really is a Tyrese Halliburton effect in the pick and roll. So if Obi is getting more screens where he finally gets to roll and move toward the basket on those screens, I suspect that we will be looking at him quite a bit differently than what the context was for him in New York. Now, that's not to say he's going to be making some like massive leap, but just relative to what he was doing with the Knicks and because he did produce with the Knicks when he got more minutes. Now, some of that's coming at the end of the season against, you know, like what happened against the Pacers when he had like two career games and they had shifted development mode. But I do think that we'll be looking at him at differently than what his tenure with the Knicks has been. So those are kind of the two main guys that I'd be looking at. I love Obi Toppin's fit with the Pacers uh, playing next to Miles Turner on both ends of the floor with Turner spacing the floor, opening up uh, rib runs for, for Toppin. And, and then also as a rim protector, protecting Toppin in some ways. I, I think that's an awesome fit. I think that's a great answer. And it's interesting that you say that about Miles Turner, because that's actually something I'm going to be monitoring very closely, because I think everything is lined up very well for this to be a good season for Obi Toppin. I do wonder what the impact will be on Jarris Walker and on Miles Turner to a lesser extent, because I do think when you look ahead to the playoffs, like Obi did have some decent performances in the playoffs, but the type of archetype that you want in a 16 game context, I think more closely fits what Jarris Walker is. So if Obi comes over and he really pops, which certainly you're hoping that he does or else you didn't trade for him, like does that kind of hard cap what you're doing with Jarris at that four spot? And then also with Miles, like what he showed last year is he's a five who very much needs to be defended by fives. And that showed up even before they had made the trade with Sabonis. He performs better when he's defended by fives, especially from the three-point line. He shoots like 40% when he's defended by centers compared to like 31% when he's defended by forwards and guards. And some of that's because he just gets, he gets marginalized because of cross matches. You know, when Thaddeus Young was there, they would defend Thad with Rudy Gobert and put Bogey on Miles, or they would defend Thad with Joel Embiid and put Ben Simmons on Miles, and then you're not involving him as much. So if Miles gets shoved out to the perimeter more, I think it's very possible that he doesn't completely repeat the career season that he just had, even if Obi is playing better. So I wonder what that give and take will be. But I, I think for Obi's sake, everything is lined up for him to have a very good year. I want to congratulate Patrick Williams because I'm not picking him this year. And by not <laughs> picking him, that means that he's going to do it. Um, that he, And part of the through line of the Central is there aren't that many like fresh opportunities for players. Like I had thought about like, a low-end guy is is Malik Beasley. And I thought the league liked Malik Beasley more than him getting a minimum contract with the Bucks. And his flaws defensively can be very frustrating. That, of course, was a factor in Darvin Ham's rotations on the Lakers late last year. I actually think he could fit really well with Milwaukee. Just they're going to generate those three-point opportunities, and they have enough to clean up messes. And the other guys on their team don't clean too many up. And maybe Adrian Griffin is more cool with messes kind of existing than Mike Budenholzer was. That was a part of a part of the like machine that they've done over the last couple of years. So Malik Beasley could do it, but my number one was Obi Toppin for a lot of the reasons that Caitlin laid out. I'm so thankful that she did that. And the other kind of team that I wanted to point out is Detroit. And 
there is a possibility that they need to kind of thin things out and like this isn't the year that Cade Cunningham does it. But I'm hoping and expecting and dreaming for a much better Cade Cunningham than we've actually seen on an NBA floor at any point in his career so far. Well, Cade Cunningham was my choice for breakout player until you added the caveat of, oh, we're going to talk about him differently than we talked about him. Uh, because people talk about Cade Cunningham like he's been really good. He hasn't. We can we can apply context to that and say, hey, he was just a rookie. He was on a bad team. He was in a tough situation. He only played 12 games last year. He was hurting. He But he just hasn't been that good on an NBA floor yet uh but i think this year i think he's a good candidate to play like people already talk about him to actually have earned that and like just going from only playing 12 games last year to hopefully actually being healthy that's very low-hanging fruit but you know if he's out there on the court and like what we said with mixing and matching lineups around him um i think that the handle's still gonna have to improve but i i again i don't go off of completely summer highlights and summer workouts but i do think that he had some impressive moments in that particularly his chemistry with Duran. so i think that he's prepared to hit the ground running so i think that he's a very clear breakout player as well even though you know we're picking out two players who are very much factored into the rookie of the year conversation not even two years ago but um the context has been different for both so yeah, my note, my note on Cade Cunningham was like, hey, is this too easy of a pick? Do I need another <laughs> pick? Like, is that fair? It's just, it's right there, yeah. I, I could see other Pistons kind of breaking into new levels. This would be a great time for Jaden Ivey, and I think Asar Thompson's probably a year or two away. But if they can get one of their young guys, I mean, one of the bigs, to really establish themselves as a clear-cut starter in the league this year, it would make a world of difference for them moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing there is Duran making strides defensively because I think it's going to be very easy for him to, you know, average like 12 points just from being a rim runner, especially if they play more in transition and what he does as a roller. And then Isaiah Stewart, what can he do offensively? Because he did have a nice start to the season shooting the three, and then I know he injured his elbow and the rest other than like his very hot November. I think he shot like 31%, but he is kind of surprisingly nimble when he puts the ball on the floor and can kind of navigate the middle of the floor okay with like a crab dribble once in a while. I really like Isaiah Stewart. I don't know if we'll continue to like them playing two bigs together, but it seems like Detroit likes the idea of playing him at the four. I'd like to see them swing him to the five. And I do think that he's a guy that, you know, when they do get to the point where they are a playoff team, that will probably look at Isaiah Stewart as being more valuable in the playoffs than what we fully realize about just watching him as a regular season player, because he is so switchable. And because I also think his feel is kind of underrated. There's times where you can watch him do something in the short roll or watch where he'll intuitively set a screen that isn't part of a play and I don't think that always gets credited because we kind of look at him just being like because he is so strong and and can assert and use his body so well that I think that some of the feel gets lost with him but um, I think those are the two big things can he make strides offensively and can Dern make strides defensively excellent well I will thank you both for taking the time to come on hey thanks for having me thanks for having us yeah Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper and Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can and should subscribe to Caitlin Cooper's Basketball She Wrote blog, which is a Patreon. I should post the link here. If not, you'll, you can find it very easily on her social media accounts. C2 underscore Cooper is her account on Twitter. And Dan Feldman is an integral part of Dunked on Prime, Daily Dunks, and I guess as well, we're actually working on a a podcast that will come out as a part of the Dunked on Prime umbrella that should come out next week, depending on some editing timing. And of course, he does absolutely excellent work. Love Love having him on as well. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can 
subscribe to Real GM Radio in the podcast player for choosing and download every episode. It's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. You can't get in the habit, so subscribing, it'll just pop into your player when it's ready. And you can also help other people find the show through word of mouth, social media, or leaving a rating and review. The podcast player of your choosing really do appreciate that. The single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For Real GM Radio, that is FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers can bet that $5.00 and get 200 bonus bets guaranteed. And then all customers can get who bet $5 will get $100 off Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV, which is pretty awesome. If you want to support my other work, I have pieces coming out with some frequency at The Athletic. I have a bunch of ideas that actually have a window to write here for now. And then of course, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime going strong, and we're getting closer to the season. So there are a lot of things that will come up when that happens, and those will be ready to announce when they're ready to announce. And if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I try to get back, but as many of you know, I have a young child, and I'm not always the greatest at that, but I have them go into my inbox, and so I, I try to read them, even if it's on my phone, before I go to bed each night, and get some wonderful stuff, feedback, and, and everything else there. So I really do appreciate it, really do read it, try to reply when I can. And if I didn't mention, I think I did, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get that to me. So thank you so much for listening, take care, and make it a great day.